All right, so what I've been talking about is about the love of God. And, you know, really, I think that this teaching on hell goes along with it. You know, if you don't understand what you've been redeemed from, you won't really appreciate what you've got. Jesus said those that have been forgiven little, love little. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And sometimes people think that, you know, if you haven't been through a terrible life, then that means you just can't love God very much. I believe a lot of it has to do with how much you understand you've been forgiven from, what kind of revelation you have of it. And even though I haven't done some of the outward sins that other people talk about, I doubt if there's anybody, there might be, but I doubt if there's anybody who has a greater revelation of their transgression against God than what I had. I mean, God supernaturally reveals some things to me, and I guarantee you, I know I've been forgiven a lot. Compared to what the world standard is, you may not think I've done some things, but compared to my revelation, I, I realize how much I've been forgiven. And boy, it has caused me to love a lot. And you need to understand and appreciate it. When I go back and study the Old Testament, this is one of the things that just blesses me so much. Some people, once they realize that you're out from under the Old Covenant and that you're under a New Covenant, they get so excited with the New Covenant and they see the bondage of the Old Covenant that they just get to where they don't want to even focus on it. They don't even want to think about it. They don't want to go back there. I love studying the Old Testament because when I see the harshness and the severity of God and the things that happen, it just makes me so thankful for what God has given us today that it makes me appreciate the love of God even more to see what it was like when people lived under the wrath of God and under the punishment of God. So there's a place for all of these things. I tell you what, you know, the scripture says, I believe it's in the, it's either Psalms, I mean, uh, Isaiah chapter 50 or 51. I could look it up. But in the first verse, it says, Ye that seek after righteousness, look to the rock from which you are hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you are digged. You need to look two directions if you're trying to understand righteousness and walk in right standing with God. You need to look at Jesus and recognize who you are in Christ recognize the rock from which you were hewn, but you also need to look at the hole of the pit that you came out of, and you don't ever need to forget that. You need to remember what you were and where you were going and what things would have been like without Jesus. And I guarantee you that is a big part of walking in the love of God. You can't fully appreciate the love of God if you don't fully appreciate what you deserved and what Jesus redeemed you from. So anyway... I was blessed by that. So we've been talking about the love of God. I talked about how important it is to understand the love of God, how you've got to, first of all, receive the love of God experientially for yourself before you can walk in love towards others. It's not human nature to love. So you have to receive it as a gift and literally let God live through you to be able to love other people. Then we begin to talk about what happens if you do have conflict, what happens if there is strife, if there's something that happens. How do you deal with it? The very first step is you've got to analyze, understand who's, who's at fault. Whose fault is it? You can't, you can't fix the problem if you don't know what's wrong. It's like a car, you know, and if you just hear a knocking or something, you could go out and you could spend a huge amount of money replacing the tires and repairing the body and doing this and doing that, and that's not going to deal with the problem. You have to be able to have it diagnosed. What is it that's causing the problem before you can fix it. And a lot of Christians don't have a clue about what is the problem. They know that there's strife. They know that they aren't walking in love with people. Well, what's the problem? So you have to 
identify what the problem is. And I gave four possibilities, which is the first one, it's you. And I really, I could go back and preach that all over again. And I bet you we could say some new things and get new revelation out of it because very few people look first and foremost at themselves. But this is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He says, first, cast the beam, this huge beam out of your eye before you try and remove the speck from somebody else's eye. The first place you ought to look is to see if it's you. And... uh, like I said, I could amplify on that. Let me just say one other thing. You know, I had a young man come up to me this morning and say that he'd been studying the Word, and he's come to the conclusion that if you really are focused on the Lord and uh, loving Him, that you won't be offended by all of these kind of things. And I got a scripture to back that up out of Psalms 119. I forget the exact verse right now, but it says, Great peace have they that love thy word, love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You know what, and just like what Don was preaching today, when you get to thinking about heaven and hell issues, and if you get conscious that, you know, it doesn't matter how much house, car, riches, wealth, fame, recognition you have in this life, when you get into an eternal mindset, you'll find out it really doesn't matter very much whether this person uh, ran over your lawnmower and didn't pay for it. Who cares? You know, it's just a... It's just a thing. You know, I remember this. Uh, we got a brand new um, car a few years ago, and I took it to church. And I mean, the very first time we drove it anywhere, a woman backed up and ran into that brand new car and put a dent in it. And so I got out, and she was just, she knew who I was, and she, she had heard me preach before. Oh, I'm so sorry. How could I have done this to your brand new car? And I was, I was trying to calm this lady down. It didn't bother me. And I was telling, it's just a thing. I said, it's not important. I said, my life is not going to rise or set on this car. And I said, besides that, I can get it fixed. It'll look brand new. Nobody will ever know the difference. And this woman was just horrified that she had put a dent in my car. And I said, it's just not that important. You know what, really, if you get things into their right perspective, the things that bother us are so unimportant. And so... You can't control every person out here and make everything always go right. That's what most people are trying to do. They're trying to control their circumstances, control people and get everything so that everything in their life is fine. You can't control those things outside. The only thing that you can really control is yourself. And you can change your values. And when you get an eternal mindset, did you know what? If your house burns up, it's not a big deal. If you lose your car, it's not a big deal. If all these things happen, if you lose your body, if you die, if the doctor tells you you're going to die, it's not a big deal. It's just a temporary vehicle that you're living in. It's just what allows you to function right here on earth. It's not that big of a deal. Some of you are thinking, you you can't walk that way. Yes, you can. That's what Paul said. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can reach a place. And, you know, we sing these songs when we all get to heaven. What a day that'll be. And then the doctor tells you you're going there and you fall apart like a $2 suitcase and start crying. Something's wrong with this picture. You know, when you really get into the right frame of mind where you're walking with the Lord and loving God, it's just not important. It's all stuff. It's just stuff. 
You know, I'm sure some of you have heard me tell this testimony about Jamie and me. We got evacuated from our house for two weeks in 2002 because of the fire, the Heyman fire that burned 144,000 acres here in Colorado. It got within one mile of our house, and there was a mandatory evacuation. And so our neighbors were renting U-Haul trucks and loading up everything and moving everything out. Well, we got our important papers, and we got some pictures and things like this, and we prayed over our house and over our property and believed that God was going to protect it. But as we left and getting escorted out by the sheriff, you know, Jamie just looked at me and she says, I believe that our prayers work and that we're coming back and our house will be protected. But she says, you know, it's just stuff. She says, we had fun getting it and it would be fun to start all over and replace it. At that time, that was 2002, we've now lived in our house for 19 years, so that would have been 14 years we've lived in our dream house. And if, you know, anybody who's ever been to our house, Jamie, if we were to move, we would have to have one moving van to move her little knickknacks. <laughs> every step has something on Every inch of walls covered. I mean, Jamie, it's just unbelievable. You'd have to have one 18-wheeler to move her knickknacks and then maybe half of that to move the furniture. She's got all of these things and everything's special and yet what a great attitude. It's just stuff. We had a great time getting it. We'd have fun time removing You know what? Because of things like that, I had to leave and go on a meeting and Jamie was left here by herself to go to these meetings and deal with things. And you know what? She had a great attitude and it was just fine and she was able to operate in joy and she was able to operate in love. She didn't have a chip on her shoulder so that if somebody came up, she got angry and bitter. You know why? Because it's just stuff. It's not that important. I tell you, we justify a lot of things that are unjustifiable. If if our heart was set right, things wouldn't bother us. It wouldn't bother you so much. You know, I've referred to John Wesley a number of times, and I remember going to his home over in London. And I studied and read and went through his museum, and I've, I've read a lot of John Wesley's books, and this man was powerful. He was way ahead of his time. They would have people fall out in his meetings that didn't just fall down and have a catcher get them. They would be out for three and four days. They'd have to take them home in wagons. People would be out under the presence of God. And I mean power of God manifest. He was riding to a meeting one time and his horse died. So he raised his horse from the dead and rode another 20 miles to get to the meeting. John Wesley saw some powerful things happen and he was married to a witch. He married a woman because in those days you had to be married to be in the clergy. And um, he just picked a woman. It was arranged. There was no relationship. And it turned out she hated him. And he would be praying and she'd spit on him and kick him and insult him and do all these things. And you know what? John Wesley had a terrible marriage and he refused to divorce her. They stayed together for I couldn't tell you how many years. I think the last 13 years of his life they actually lived separated in different parts of the house. But you know what? The point that I'm making is most people would have just crumbled. John Wesley just went on and transformed the world, changed the world, and went on and had a terrible marriage where he had a person that just mocked him the whole time and made fun and didn't believe in God, hated God, hated him, and the man went on and changed the world. And there are some people here that you can't hardly stand it because your husband forgot your anniversary. 
And so, tell me how to get him to remember my anniversary and to take me out on a date night. Well, those things are wonderful if they come, but you know what? If you weren't all wrapped up in yourself, you just, you just make a small package when you're all wrapped up in yourself. You get to where you love God, you could get to a place where who cares? It usually goes over about like that. So anyway, I could re-preach all that stuff. But you got to figure out, is it yourself that is just easily offended? Or did you do something to offend the other person? If it is, that's going to depend on how you deal with it. Is it the other person that's the problem? Is it both of you that's the problem, which is usually the case? Or it could be God that has caused the problem. That's not to say that God causes us to hate people or things like that. But sometimes God does not want relationships to go forward. It's a bad relationship. And it is an option that God may be the one who's not wanting the relationship to work. So we discussed those four possibilities. Then last night we started talking about, all right, what if it's you that's the problem? Well, first of all, if it's you that's just taking an offense, if you've put the emphasis on all kinds of carnal things, and that's the reason that you're so upset is because you just are codependent upon people instead of God and things like this, well, then change yourself. And if you have harmed the other person, if you've done something, you have to evaluate. Is this something that you've actually done harm to the person? Should you go and repent to them like it says over in James chapter 5 where it says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another? Yes, ultimately that's what you do if you've hurt the other person. But if it's just something that you've been thinking these things in your heart, don't dump your trash on them and tell them how much you hate them because now they've got to deal with this. And so we talked about all of that. But if you did hurt them, you do need to go and confess and repent and try and reconcile. Here's some other things that I did not say last night that I probably should have said that go along with this first step. If you're the problem and if you go to them and if you repent, you need to be prepared for a negative response. Don't think that just because, oh, I'm sorry and now I've repented, you've got to forgive me. You're the one that caused the problem. And you know what? It would be wonderful if that other person is so godly that they just turn around and forgive you. But you know what? You need to recognize you caused the problem. And you're reaping what you sow. Now, you can pray that God will give you a crop failure and that you'll reap something that you don't deserve and that you get mercy and grace instead of judgment. But you know what? You can't demand it. And if you go and repent, and then if that person says, well, I'm not going to forgive you. And if you get upset at them, well, you should. The Bible says that if your brother sins against you, you're supposed to forgive. You have no right, no right, no right to demand anything. And if you go with that attitude of, I'm sorry and I've repented, now you forgive me, all you're doing is making the situation worse. You haven't truly humbled yourself. If you've truly humbled yourself, you know what, you go and there's no justification. There's no uh, saying, well, you know what, I'm wrong, but you were wrong too. And, you know, if you do any of that, you have weakened and totally undone everything. I had a situation happen in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. It's a long story, but this pastor hated me. And I was at his church. They sold 600 uh, tapes of the meetings that I held, but the pastor hated what I taught. And um, he followed me on radio right after my radio program. And so after I left there, he made his programs live, and I taped mine. And so he would just listen to my program and then go into the studio and whatever I taught he would come on and this guy's of the devil 
And he started telling all the people I was of the devil. And I mean, just caused a lot of problems. And I, I actually went off the radio just because I thought, you know what? This isn't good for the body of Christ to have two preachers. I wasn't preaching anything and preaching against him, but he would just contradict me. And I thought, you know, it'd be better for me to just bow out. So I got off the radio rather than to allow that to go on. And uh, so anyway, he wrote me a few letters. We had a few contacts and stuff, but boy, he just hated me. Well, 20 years after the fact, he contacted me. And he says, you know, I was wrong in the way I treated you and in the things I did. And he says, of course, you were wrong too. You shouldn't have ever preached this, and I still believe you. And he started railing on me. And then he says, I tell you what. He says, on such and such a day, you write a letter apologizing for what you did. And on that same day, I'll write a letter apologizing for what I did. And they'll pass in the mail and we'll forgive each other and we can restore this. <laughs> you know what? I didn't even respond to it. I thought, that guy hadn't repented. He's under conviction. He's at least realized that what he did wasn't right. But you can't go in and say, all right, I'll repent. I did a little bit wrong, but you did wrong. And if you're doing that, that's not repentance. If you want to see an attitude of repentance, you can see that. And I believe the 15th chapter of the book of Luke, where the prodigal son came to himself and he came to his father and he says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. He didn't come demanding uh, certain you know, things be done and come back and say, well, I am your son and I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done this. But now you're my father and you forgive me and you take me back. Anytime you see a person with that kind of an attitude where they are coming in and somehow or another trying to manipulate you, it is not true repentance. You'll see this with kids a lot. You'll see kids that finally, because of something, they've been forced into admitting they're wrong, but then they come back and they know how you feel about them and they know that you feel responsible and they'll sit there and manipulate you and make you feel guilty and stuff, and that's not true repentance. You know, my son that was raised from the dead, I won't give you details because it's his testimony, not mine, but there was, there was some serious bad things that he did to us. He, he made Paul Harvey's international, worldwide news saying, I've never heard of anything this bad. And he talked about the things that my son did to, uh, to Jamie and me. And you know what? Peter went through some terrible times. But he repented of it. And I could tell when he truly repented because he came back and he says, if you and mom never talk to me again in my life, he says, I understand I deserve everything that you would do to me. He says, I'll not be mad at you. He says, I don't deserve you to forgive us, forgive me. But he says, would you please forgive me? He says, I just need to know that you forgive me. And you know, when he came with that kind of an attitude, no manipulation, no control, I could see, man, that is true repentance. And see, that's, that's what the Lord is advocating. That if you go and you humble yourself and you try and make sure your brother or sister, you can't do it with an agenda. You have to be prepared for them to not forgive you. You're the one that caused the problem. And you have to deal with what you've sown. And if you don't have that attitude and if you go in and now you're upset at them again, then you never repented in the first place. You never fully accepted responsibility. And let me just jump on down because this is a related thing. That's the first thing. If you're the problem, you go and re humble yourself to your, your, your person that you wrong. But let's jump on down to what if it was both of you? You don't go and confess 
There, you know, say, I'll confess my side, you confess your side, like this pastor I was telling you about. You just go in and accept your responsibility for the problem. You deal with your side of the thing, and it's totally up to them whether they want to repent or not. It really is immaterial to you whether they repent. You would love to see them repent so that maybe the relationship could be restored, but you are just dealing with your side of the deal. You have no authority, no control to make them repent. Most people don't like this. Because, well, you, I believe I ought to have some leverage. I ought to be able to condemn them. And No. All you're going to do, the ringing of the nose brings forth blood, so the forcing of wrath brings forth strife. You just don't do that. I guarantee you it's not the way that you approach things. If you're wrong, and I don't care if they're 90% wrong and you're 10% wrong, you go repent of your 10% and you assume responsibility as if you did the whole thing. You don't have to say, I am the total problem, but just accept your part of the problem. If they did something wrong and your reaction was wrong, then you ought to go and say, you know, I reacted totally wrong. Forgive me. And you accept your responsibility and humble yourself and make yourself vulnerable. Boy, most of us don't like to do this because you know what? Our trust truly is not in God. Our trust is truly in ourselves, and we don't want to give up the high ground. We don't want to give up the leverage that we've got and that little bit of condemnation. We want to reserve all of those rights to be able to manipulate people. You know what? If you're wrong, just admit you're wrong and don't, make, uh, don't confess their sin. It's not up to you to confess their sin. You just deal with your part of it. And you know what? There's a number of things that will happen when you do that. For one thing, the Bible says that you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will lift you up. You know, when you do that, it starts a supernatural God flow of power and anointing through you. And God can get into that situation as long as you humble yourself. But it says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. As long as you are maintaining your rights and you are refusing to humble yourself, you stop the flow of God through you and you aren't going to get God involved in that situation. It's only going to be you. And I guarantee you, you aren't going to solve most uh, problems in relationships without getting God involved in that situation. You need to humble yourself and again, true repentance is where you don't come demanding, claiming any rights. You just say, forgive me for what I have done wrong. And you're prepared for them not to forgive you. And if they don't, well then, you know, you don't like that. You don't want it. But you don't have any right to make a person forgive you. And if you come in trying to force it and manipulate and demand that this person forgives you, then you've never humbled yourself. You've never fully accepted responsibility. And here's another thing. Even if that person forgives you, then, now this is really important that you get this. You aren't, they can't give you, they shouldn't give you trust. They shouldn't put you back into a position of trust immediately. Now there's a lot of people confused on this issue and they think, well, if you really forgive me, well then just trust me. Reinstate me. Give everything. Like, again, go back to a parent-child relationship. Your parent, the child does something that offends the parent, and they violate They You told them being at 11. They come in at 1 in the morning and all these kind of things. 
And so you exercise some kind of discipline on them. The child repents and comes and says, I'm sorry. And then you say, all right. And so they say, all right, I want to go out again tonight. And you say, no. Well, that's, I thought you forgave me. Oh, I did forgive you, but I don't trust you. You know what? Forgiveness and trust are opposite things. They're absolutely opposite. They are not the same thing. Just because you forgive a person doesn't mean that you automatically trust that person and put them back in a position to where they could uh, offend and do things again. And so if it's in a relationship, if the person did forgive you, but yet, say for instance, you lied about them or you manipulated them, tried to lie to them, I guarantee you, um, it takes time. It takes time to build trust again. And it's not something that you can demand. Trust is fragile. And once you break it, it, you just can't all of a sudden wave your hand over it and it's back together. You have to earn a person's trust. A person can give you forgiveness, but they can't give you trust. And if you try and give a person trust, if you trust a person without them deserving it, you're foolish. It's not what the scripture says. You should never do that. You should never do that. A person has to earn trust. You know, I've got a relationship right now that I'm dealing with. Last week I had lunch with this guy, and this long story, but I mean, we were super good friends, really close friends. Something happened, and uh, it was major, big-time wrong what happened, and he came over to our house, he and his wife, to talk to Jamie and me about it, and right as he walked in the door, I got a phone call that gave me the facts of what had happened. And so I had all this information. And I just sat down and let him talk and explain what was going on. And he lied to me for 30 minutes. He spun these big, long, elaborate explanations and just lied through his teeth. And I sat there and listened to him and listened to him. And finally I said, well, I'm really confused because I just got off the phone with so-and-so who said you admitted that all of this stuff was true. And Man, he was just devastated. And within a minute, he was gone out of my house. And later that night, he called and he says, you know, you're right. I just sat there and lied to you. And he says, I don't know how you could ever forgive me. And I said, I forgive you. I said, I'm not mad at you. I said, but you know what? It took me 18 years to trust you to this point. And I said, it's going to be probably another 18 years before I'll ever trust you the way I did before. And some people may think that's terrible. I just think that's the way that it is. And it's, I mean, I can't trust this guy. He has proven to me. And if I hadn't have had this information, I would have thought he's innocent because he was wonderful at it. He was very convincing. He's a great liar. And you know what? I just came to the place that, you know what? I said, I don't know what it's going to take to trust you, but it's going to certainly take some time and you're going to have to prove yourself. And so last week we had a, a meeting together and you know what? I was impressed with some of the things that I saw because we talked about these very things and I said, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to make our relationship go. And he says, you know what? I understand. He says, I'm the one that caused the problem. He says, you know what? I don't care how long it takes. He says, I deserve whatever I get. And you know what? He, he didn't manipulate. He didn't try and convince me of anything. And when he did that, 
his stock went up a little bit in my estimation because he didn't, he didn't try and justify himself. Now, I still don't trust him, but I'm moving in that direction. Things are getting better because he's humbling himself and he's not manipulating me and trying to feel like if you were really a true Christian, you ought to just immediately reinstate me. Nope, doesn't work that way. If you would understand these principles that we're talking about, you know what? You would get to where you value your integrity and trust and people's trust to you, and it is sacred. And once you break it, it can't just you can't just wave your hand over it and everything is right. I guarantee you in a marriage, if you had violated your marriage vows and stuff, you can go back and be as repentant as you want to be, and you could be truly repentant and swear, I'll never do it again, I love you, I'm so sorry, and you could be sincere, sincere, sincere. And if you've got a godly mate, they can forgive you, but I guarantee you it's going to take some time before that person ever trusts you again. And if you don't understand that, and if you get upset, because they aren't trusting you, and when you're gone someplace, they call to check up and see what you're doing. And if you get mad about that, you know what? You're the problem. You're the one that caused the problem. You cannot demand that person to trust you. Now, on the other hand, let me say that you could, if you were the one that was wronged, and if the person came and forgave you, I mean, ask forgiveness, and you said, I forgive them, but if you're having trouble trusting them, you know what, eventually you're going to have to take a step of faith. And you're going to have to start responding. And when you see positive things in this person, you're going to have to start giving that faith. And you're going to have to make yourself vulnerable again. You know, when you trust a person, you are making yourself vulnerable. You're taking their word. You're going to trust what they say. You're going to trust them. And it, and it is a place of being vulnerable. And I see this with a lot of people, that because they've been hurt in the past, the way they respond is they're never, ever going to let anybody get close to them again so that they can never be hurt. You know, I can understand that logic, but it's totally wrong. And what that does, it not only keeps you from being just totally destroyed again, but it also keeps you from ever loving again. By you shutting up and, and building those barriers, it uh, hinders you from receiving the love of God. It hinders you from being loving towards other people. You can't live that way. You are going to eventually have to make yourself vulnerable again if there is some good faith on that person's part that they're repenting. So there's a balance to all of these kind of things. So anyway, here's what I was really wanting to get at. I, I did this all out of sequence, but hopefully uh, you can have the Holy Spirit help you put this together. So if it is you, you either change the thing on the inside of you and don't tell the other person if you don't need to. But if you need to, then you go, you humble yourself, you confess your faults alone. If it's the other person, last night, or yeah, it was last night we started talking about the steps that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 18. You first of all go to that person alone and try and reconcile with them one-on-one. -on -one. Not for the purpose of dumping on them, but for the purpose of reconciliation. If that doesn't work, you take one or two more for the purpose of arbitration, that you get a third person's point of view, not so that you can just have two or three people now yelling at him instead of one. But if that doesn't work, then you bring him before the church. And let me relate this to over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is talking about the situation where a man in the Corinthian church committed incest with his mother-in-law. Not mother-in-law, what is it? Stepmother. His father's wife. It wasn't his mother, but it was his father's wife. 
And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is, is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. In other words, he's saying even unbelievers don't do this kind of stuff. Man, Christians are living worse than unbelievers. In verse 2, he says, And you are puffed up and have not repented. Have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Notice he's not talking to the man who did this. He's talking to the body of Christ. He's talking to the rest of the believers. And he's rebuking them for not dealing with what this man did. Boy, there's a whole message out of this that I'm not going to take time to go into today. But, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. To a degree, you don't assume total responsibility. But yes, we have a responsibility to each other to be able to deal with things. And so he says in verse 3, For I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory in is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, uh, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. In other words, what he's doing is saying in a previous epistle he had told them to not keep company with people who are living in uh, open flagrant sin. And he says, and yet I wasn't really talking about not associating with unsaved people. He says, if you know, if you had to separate yourself from every unsaved person who was doing something wrong, then you'd have to leave the world. He says, it's basically practically impossible. You can't do that. But he says in verse 11, but now I've written unto you not to keep company of any man that is called a brother, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. So he's saying, I wasn't really talking about you withdrawing from all of the ungodly, non-saved people. He says, you'd have to leave the world. But I was specifically specifying if people in the church are living this way, there ought to be some degree of correction administered by the body for them. In verse 12, for what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And this is a this is a opening up a can of worms. I could talk about this for an hour. But a person outside of the covenant, God is ministering in mercy towards unbelievers as a general rule. But he could call an unbeliever's account due at any time. And that's what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. That's what he did with Simon the sorcerer. That's what he did with other people. I mean, a mist and a darkness fell upon Simon. Uh, Herod was eaten with worms. And while he was standing there, Josephus wrote, and his bowels, literally worms, came out of his bowels. And he fell down dead in front of people. And it says the angel of the Lord struck him. 
God did that, but they were outside of the covenant. God is hesitant. He's, we're living in a day of mercy and He's extending mercy and it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. But there are examples of people outside of the covenant who come under the wrath of God. God judges those that are without, is what He says. But those within the covenant, God is not going to judge you. God is not going to strike you with sickness. God is not going to punish you. He placed all of your punishment on the Lord. So does that mean that you just totally are home free? Go live like the devil? Well, the body of Christ should be correcting you and should be dealing with things. This is what he's talking about. And so in this instance, he says, This man who committed this act of incest, you should turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, there's not a lot of teaching about this, but the only teaching I ever heard about this before I prayed about it and God spoke this to me and showed me some things The only thing I'd ever heard about this was what uh, some people call excommunication to where you kick them out of the church. And like the Catholic Church still practices this to a degree where they excommunicate people. And in the Catholic uh, denomination, your salvation is dependent upon your relationship to the church. It's actually more important what you, you conform to the rules of the church than it is that you have personal relationship with God. So for a Catholic, to kick them out of the church means that they are damned. And that's what some people believe that turning a person over to Satan is, is eternal damnation. You just damn them to hell. That is not what this is talking about at all. Matter of fact, uh, the context of this shows differently. He says, with such a person like this, no, not to eat, that you're supposed to withdraw from them. And... uh, You know, I'm not going to get all of this out in the next 15 minutes. So I tell you what, I've got a lot of teaching on this. My Life for Today Bible, if you get that, will go into a lot more explanation. Let me just cut to the chase and give you the the footnotes, or what do they call these, the cliff notes of, of what this is. Turning a person over to Satan is withdrawing your fellowship and your intercession from that person. And that, again, is what's being talked about in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, the fourth step is that if that person doesn't listen to the church, then let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican, which was a tax collector, a person who was collaborating with the Roman government in those days. Now, how, how did the Lord tell us to teach the lost, uh, treat the lost? You don't treat them badly. You don't hate them. You don't pray that they go to hell. That's not what he's saying. But you know how you treat the lost? You may be friendly to them. You may witness to them. But you know what? As this scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and other places, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't keep company with such a man. Know not to eat. It's talking about removing your fellowship and your intercession from this person. In other words... Uh, quit extending your faith out there and praying for them. Instead, withdraw your faith and turn them over and let them reap what they're sowing. For the purpose being that if they all of a sudden don't have the intercession and the fellowship of the body, hopefully they'll start when they start reaping what they sow and all of a sudden their life falls apart, they'll want to run back to the Lord. And this will be a deterrent to them to persisting in that deal. Let me give you a quick uh, testimony about this. When I was pastoring my first little church, there was a man named Andy. Actually, he was a 16-year-old boy that got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And uh, 
I spoke at this uh, Baptist encampment thing, and, and a bunch of the kids in that Baptist church got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, when they went back to their church, the Baptist church didn't believe in that, and these people got persecuted. They got torched. And uh, it was in the summer, it was about June when I spoke, and Andy was one of these that got baptized in the Holy Ghost. He came back, was so vocal about it, that he got kicked out of his Baptist church. And he was only, he might have been 16. He got kicked out of his Baptist church. He got ostracized, criticized. And he went back to school and he stood for a while and he saw some people born again. I was going over and holding Bible studies and he was doing okay. But he only lasted about six months. And after a while, there was so much rejection and persecution that he just got lonely. And so he went back to his old buddies. He was a dope dealer before. And he went back and got to dealing dope. He quit coming to the... Bible studies. By that time, I had gone to Seagaville, and we started a church, and he came for a brief period of time, but he quit going to church. He got back into dope and got to doing all this stuff, and he was shacking up with this girl. He was living with this girl. So the church was praying for him every day, every day. And about a year into him going away from the Lord, uh, I went over and saw him uh, one day. And I'd been talking to him on and off a number of times, but I went over one day and I just was determined I was going to get in his face and deal with this. And I started talking to him and I started telling him, I said, Andy, I know that you're miserable. I know that you aren't enjoying this. This guy had the Lord speaking to him. He was full of the spirit of God, the way that I've seen very few people. And I said, I know you miss what you had and that you're miserable and stuff. And he says, Nope, you're wrong. He says, I'm not miserable. He says, before, I was miserable. And he says, I know what I'm doing is wrong. But he says, it's the strangest thing. I'm not condemned. I don't feel bad about it. He says, I am not miserable. He says, I really feel okay. And I said, I don't believe that. And he says, well, it's the truth. And anyway, we just came to a stalemate. And I left there thinking, what is going on? This can't be. And I started praying, saying, Lord, what's happening? And the Lord said, you are praying for him day and night that he will feel the love of God and that he won't be condemned. And you've been standing there and that whole body of believers has been rebuking the devil and binding discouragement and praying. And I said, you're getting your prayers answered. And I thought, wow, I never thought of it. And I said, you know what? He's using our prayers and intercession to be able to go serve the devil. And he's not reaping what he sowed. So anyway, I started studying it, and this is when the Lord showed me what turning a person over to Satan was. And you know what? I prayed about it. I went to the church. I was a pastor of the church. I don't, this shouldn't be done on an individual basis. I believe it was told to be done in a church setting. It needs to be under the supervision of somebody who's a mature believer. It needs to be done as a corporate thing under many people agreeing with you. You don't do this and just go out because you dislike this person, turn them over to Satan. But... After praying about it, I went and shared all of these scriptures, much more than what I have time to share with you. We discussed it as a body, and we decided, you know what? We need to stop this. And he's misusing our intercession. And so we just had a prayer meeting, and we said, Father, we still love Andy, and we pray that he's going to repent. But we aren't going to intercede for him anymore, and we aren't going to fellowship. If he comes around, we're going to tell him we love him, but we aren't going to let him into our house. We aren't going to sit down and eat with him. He needs to reap what he sows. Hopefully that he'll turn and recognize that something's wrong. And we did that in a service and prayed. At 8 o'clock the next morning, Andy was knocking on my door. 
He says, what did you do to me? And I said, what do you mean? He says, everything changed last night. He says, man, am I condemned and depressed and discouraged. He says, I know you did something to me. And I said, bingo, amen, it worked. And you know what? I saw firsthand what this is. And I believe that that's what turning a person over to Satan is. It's not damning them to hell or hating them. As a matter of fact, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let me just read this to you quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says um, in verse 5, he says, But if any man hath caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I might not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love unto him. This is talking about the man who had committed incest. And this man repented. And now he's saying, receive him back. The purpose of turning a person over to Satan isn't damning them to hell or praying or excommunicating them and taking their salvation away. You don't have the right to do that. But you can withdraw your intercession and, and pray that, you know what? The scripture says, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. John chapter 20, verse 23. You have the power to remit sins, not forgive them. The word remission has to do with the effects. You can deal with the effects of sin in a person's life. Even though a person may be out there living a homosexual lifestyle, through your intercession, you can stop them from getting AIDS. You can stop them from reaping what they've sown through your intercession. You have the power to remit people's sins. And the flip side of the coin is you have the power to retain people's sins. You have the the power to say, Father, I believe they are reaping what they sow. And I would never encourage that as a first uh, first resort. But there is a place, the fourth step in this correction is if you go to them personally, if you take one or two more, if you bring it before the church, then eventually... You can retain their sins unto them, turn them over to Satan for the purpose of seeing them repent and that their soul might be saved in the day of judgment. Their spirit. That's what this is talking about. Let me real quickly say this. This is not practical in probably 90% or more of situations today because like I said last night, the body of Christ has not accepted this responsibility. And so you aren't going to find churches that you can bring your dispute before the church and have them rule in that situation. And then if the person doesn't repent and submit to it, uh, then uh, you can't turn them over to Satan because most churches won't function that way. Plus, here's another point. Most churches don't intercede for people like this. So what good would it do to withdraw your intercession if you haven't been given it in the first place? Most people don't... This isn't even a... This isn't even a question. Most of us, the person that we've had offended at us, you haven't been praying and interceding for them and keeping Satan at bay through your great love and intercession. So to withdraw it isn't going to do very much. So this really breaks down and becomes impractical in a lot of situations. But there are some still some principles here that I believe that we need to operate in. And, you know, often I'll talk to parents. And again, this is an opinion. Some of you may disagree with me on this, but uh, it's my opinion. Opinion are are like noses. Everybody's got one, usually has a couple holes in it. Here's my opinion. 
that you know what? You do love your children and you do want your children to succeed. But I have seen lots of parents that because they love their children, they just always, it's default that they are always going to step in and bail their children out regardless of what the problem is. And I think that certainly that should be the way that we start dealing with things and we extend mercy towards them. But you know what? If a child knows that they can get out of whatever because mom and dad is going to bail them out of jail, bail them out of their financial crisis, always have somebody to run home to. If you have problems with your mates, you can always run home to mom or dad. And if you can do things like that, you know what? In a sense, you are extending intercession towards them that could be good temporarily, but ultimately if they begin to start misusing that, I think that there's a principle here that's similar to like turning them over to Satan. It may not be the exact same thing, but you know what? There comes a time that you have to let a kid crash and burn. You have to let them realize that, you know what? If this is the way that you've chosen to live, then this is the results that you get. And I have told lots of parents, lots of parents, that you know what? You need to let your kid reap what he's sown. And they just think that's terrible. Oh, as a parent, I ought to do whatever it takes to stop this from happening. Nope, there's, I'm not saying it's the first time, but I'm saying eventually you reach a place to where, you know what, they need to realize there are consequences to their sin and not miss out on it. You know, I actually was uh, on jury duty one time. And this, they were asking me questions, and this judge says, Womack, Womack, I know that name. He says, have you been in front of me? And I said, no, sir, but I said, my son was in your court. And he said, oh, so are you mad at me for the judgment that I gave? And I said, no. He says, did you think I was too hard? And I said, no, I wish you'd have thrown him in jail and have thrown the key away. I said, you let him off the hook when I've been praying that he would realize that he was wrong, and you let him off the hook. This judge just laughed at me and dismissed me from jury duty. They didn't want me on there. But you know what? I firmly believe it. Praise God. You know, they need to learn uh, that there are consequences to living wrong. Now, again, that's not the first step. Jesus said it was the fourth step. It's the final step. And... In the, in the context of Matthew chapter 18, you don't do this personally because it would be so easy for you to misjudge the situation and be prejudiced and biased. And so here you are mad at a person because they did something and you start interceding and praying, devil, get them. That's not right. That's witchcraft. And you become an agent of the devil. This is a, this is a serious thing that in most cases doesn't even apply because in the first place nobody's been interceding for him, so withdrawing your intercession has minimal effect. But if you have been interceding for them and praying, I wouldn't execute this without coming under the leadership of a pastor, somebody who did submit and come under their spiritual wisdom, and it needs to be a corporate uh, deal. This is not the kind of thing you do lightly. And... Even if a church was to execute this judgment, I mentioned this last night, but you know, it would be easy for a person, if you withdrew your intercession and fellowship for the person who's being disciplined just to go across the street and join another church and you get in there and so they start loving you and praying for you and helping you and giving you Christian fellowship and encouragement and you know what, it's going to minimize the effect of the judgment of that church. So in our divided disunified body of Christ that we see today, this really isn't effective. But 
if nothing else, this ought, to, this ought to encourage us that, you know what, we need to get back to where the church was, to where we are such a body of believers that we intercede for each other so that if something happens, you could have some leverage with a person because you were so important in their life. The fellowship and the support and the prayer and intercession was so important. You know, we had a woman in this same church in Sigaville, Texas, and I mean, we only had a small body of about 15, 20 people. But we met together five times a week. We prayed for each other constantly. And we often said, if you're ever in a bind, you just tell the Lord and He'll speak to us and we'll go to interceding and agreeing with you right then. And we had this one lady, Nancy Borden, who was a, a teacher in a town about 30, 20, 30 miles away. And she got in trouble for being a Christian and being outspoken. And she was always getting criticized. And so... Anyway, we said, if you ever need help, just pray. And so she had been witnessing to a kid. The principal found out about it, got on the speaker and said, Mrs. Borden, come to the office. And as she was walking down the halls to go to the office, she says, all right, Father, you said, I mean, these guys said, if I ever need intercession, all I got to do is pray and ask. And these people go to agreeing with me. And she looked at her watch and it was something like five minutes till 10 in the morning. And that night when we came together for church, she didn't say anything. There was three of us at exactly five minutes to ten. We said, Nancy, what was it that you needed? Because we all stopped what we were doing and we started praying for her. I mean, it was awesome. And when she got to the principal's office, he just looked at her and he says, go back to your classroom. Didn't even say anything to her. Amen. You know what, when you have a body of believers that is functioning like that, that are interceding for each other, this would be a very effective judgment to withdraw that from a person and stuff. But if you don't have it, then you aren't going to miss it. But anyway, these are some of the principles about how you reconcile and how you deal with things. And and, uh, I believe that some of these things, if we would implement this, would make a huge difference. So anyway, tonight and tomorrow, I've still got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about now... Uh, these are the principles. How do you walk in forgiveness? How is it that you forgive people? How do you get over these feelings and things? There's still a lot to be dealing with, but hopefully this is helping you to learn how to walk in love towards other people. Amen. Praise the Lord. Father, we love you and we are thankful for your love for us. And Father, thank you. Help us to put things into perspective. If Father, we would... Quit being upset over trivial things that we would get an eternal perspective. Father, help us to humble ourselves and not to go into trying to reconcile by criticizing the other person. Help us to accept responsibility for the wrong that we've done. And Father, to earn people's trust and understand that it's something that is a gift. It can't be demanded. And Father, I just pray that these things we've talked about today would be things that people would take and implement in their personal relationships and that, Father, because of it, we'd be able to start walking in love better than we ever have before. And Father, we agree and we receive this in Jesus' name.